Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Landides, and we are switching things up a little bit this week. Normally, we would be doing an event episode this week. Me and Josh would be tag teaming on going through uh, one of the Strike Force events, but instead, we're going to flip flop a little bit, and I am going to talk with John Morgan of MMA Junkie today. We are going to break down when Zufa bought Strike Force all the way back in March of 2011, so just over 10 years ago as we record this. So I sat down with John recently and we talked about uh, his background in MMA. This guy's been covering MMA for years and years, and he is, I consider, one of the OGs of MMA journalism. So we talked through his background and then we break down the Strike Force deal what it meant when Zufa bought the promotion, the, you know, what the fighters thought about it, uh, what the, jur- the journalists, the media thought about it, and what it really meant to the MMA landscape, both at that time and then really uh, even today. So we get into all of that. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right. On the line with us, we have longtime MMA journalist and a friend of mine, John Morgan. He's with us on Inside the Hexagon. John, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me, brother. It's been uh, it's been fun listening to you go through this whole journey with, with Strike Force, man. So I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I, I and I've I've been wanting to connect with you. I've, obviously, I talked with uh, Gorgeous George previously and and got to talk with him some and talked to a few other uh, MMA journalists. But to me, you know, look, you're you're one of the OGs for sure. So I, I definitely want to make sure to have you on. But before we get to Strike Force. Uh, I, I would like to know. I actually don't know what got you into MMA and exactly how long you've been in MMA. So, give us uh, give us the background story, the origin story of John Morgan as MMA reporter. Yeah, it's funny, man. You know, so growing up, man, I was as a little kid. I liked professional wrestling, right? I mean, uh, Saturday night's main event with like Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and the Macho Man. You know, I loved it, right? You know, my mom would let me stay up late and watch it. And then when I was about eight or nine years old, you know, I figured out that it wasn't real. And I was super <laughs> bummed, you know. Yeah, I, just, I, admit, I, thought, I thought they were having real fights, man. And I, just, and I loved it so much. And so when I found out it wasn't, it really disappointed me. Well, really kind of a wild chance encounter. But, you know, I was born and raised in Dallas. And uh, when I was around 12, 13, somewhere around that, uh, a friend of a friend uh, invited us to a gym opening. Um, it was it was a friend of my mom's and this was a friend of hers, and, but it was Guy Mesger and he was actually opening a kickboxing gym in Dallas. And so we went there and he had a tape, a VHS tape of, of Muay Thai from Thailand playing on a television in his gym. And I saw that and I was like, oh, my God, like this is what a real fight looks like. Like this, <laughs> you know, all that stuff I liked when I was nine years old, like here's what they're really doing. And it just stuck with me. And then you had Guy Mesger, you know, back then with the ponytail and all that looking all <laughs> cool, you know. So this was this was pre-UFC. But then, you know, uh, around the time, you know, Pancras and, and, and the UFC and everything gets started, I was just dialed in from the very beginning. You know what I mean? I was, I was a kid. I used to – so in fact, there's still. I was talking to my mom about the other day. She was asking me. I've got these stacks of of uh, pancreas VHS tapes over at my mom's house back in Dallas. She's like, "What do you want me to do with these?" I'm like, "Don't you touch them!" Like, I don't have a VCR player, but don't you dare throw away my pancreas tapes. Uh, so anyway, I was I loved the sport from the beginning. The first UFC I ever attended live was UFC 16 uh, at the Pontchartrain Event Center in in, uh, in Louisiana, and uh, I just love the sport, right? And and I love playing sports growing up and, and uh, you know, kind of figured out I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, um, but I always had a knack for, for telling stories and writing. And, and, and so I liked the idea of journalism. So I, start, I started studying for sports journalism so that I figured I could still be around professional sports. But I'll be honest, at the time, I, I never even put the idea of the two together because back then, mixed martial arts, it wasn't an industry. You know right. what I mean? It was just right. the Wild West. So 
Um, you know, so just kind of kept my fandom alive uh, as, as, as I was studying journalism. Long story short, I, I got out of school um, and I didn't go into journalism because I was getting paid more in the restaurant business, which is how I paid my way through school. But I got I got to a point where I was about 28 years old or so. And I was like, man, I, I like what I'm doing, but I don't want to I don't want to one day you know, look back and I'm 50 years old and I never gave it a shot at being a, a sports journalist. And so, uh, man, I, I wanted to get into to writing about MMA and it's crazy how it worked out, man. Uh, MMA Weekly, I used to be a daily MMA Weekly reader and they had a forum and in that forum, Gorgeous George uh, was, was posting in there. He said, hey, we're looking for somebody to help recap our interviews at Tag Radio, triggering Gorgeous George to put on UFC, uh, I believe it was still UFC junkie at that time, which uh, yeah, the, yep. UFC, the the UFC later uh, kindly suggested that we change that name uh, <laughs> right. very, very politely uh, right. with the cease and desist letter. Um, right. But anyway, so I just I just filled out a little application to intern for him, basically just by recapping interviews and and uh, and putting him on MMA junkie, and so we did that, and it, it went from uh, free work to part time work to full time work. You know, moved to Vegas in two thousand eight, and been with MMA junkie for fifteen years now, man. So crazy journey. Well, I'm glad you shared that. I, I've, I've actually always been curious and for listeners. So when I got into MMA for my four year stint, I reached out to a bunch of different reporters and I heard back from two. One was Kevin Iole with, uh, with Yahoo sports and the other was John Morgan. So, um, that four year run, I credit you guys for helping open that door and giving me advice. You and I actually had a phone conversation. I was somewhere I was at a hotel and I remember being on the balcony talking to you about this. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what the situation was, but anyways, I, um, yeah, I, it's, it, and then it's so crazy just to, the way the industry has grown just in the last 10 years. Um, never mind from when, yeah, I started, I was watching VHS in the nineties as well. And just blow like not blown away it like by the athleticism necessarily but just by like you said the wild west watching you know tank abbott knock a guy out and then mock him afterwards and you know all that stuff it was it was crazy to you know the groin shots and and all that stuff and to see where it is at an actual true industry a multi multi you know million billion maybe dollar industry overall i mean it's amazing to see the growth. So I, I do want to ask you, so I do want to get to what we, what we're here to discuss, which is <laughs> Zufa's purchase of strike force in 2011 and forgive this kind of monologue, but this does bleed into just seeing the growth of the industry. But if you take a step back to 2011, so at that point, pride, which I miss so dearly, I miss mm. pride so much elite XC affliction WEC. They're all gone either pretty much all bought by the UFC in some way, shape, or form, except for Elite XC, which uh, Strikeforce bought their uh, their their assets, fighter contracts, and fight uh, fight library. But Bellator was still kind of finding its legs. Definitely not a real threat to the UFC. At that point, no one in the world, the MMA world really was, despite the perception that Strikeforce was at least a rival. But as we've gone through my podcast, Strikeforce never really drew anywhere near the gates of the UFC as far as, you know, money. They, they, I mean, UFC at this point, they're regularly drawing, you know, two, $3 million gates. UFC or Strikeforce only eclipsed a million dollars like two or three times, at least from what we, you know, as far as we are, we're at 2011. So yeah, you know, never drew the ratings. UFC was regularly drawing. They were not in part of the, the pay-per-view game. So the, we're kind of going a little bit reverse here, but did you, at that point, consider Strike Force or really any promotion to actually be competition to the UFC. And looking back now, 
you know, I, I, t- I mean, we can argue about it. if you think they were, I don't think they were, but looking back now, do you think that they were? No, I don't, to be honest with you. I mean, the closest thing you ever had to real competition was, was pride. Of course. I mean, pride's heyday, they were doing great. And I thought it was amazing. I think it was that 25 or 25 series that the UFC did when they did a look back and you actually finally heard Lorenzo Fertitta admit on tape, like pride was bigger than us back then. Cause they never would, you know what I mean? They yeah. wouldn't say it, but finally when it, you know, when it's all said and done, they admit yeah, the pride was bigger than us at the time. So that was the last real rival to me. Strikeforce was never, to me, a, a rival for the UFC, but it was a good place for fighters to at least go and potentially get paid. I mean, obviously that, that you know, maintains a major storyline even in today's sport, right? The more options there are, the better off for the athletes involved because they can at least, you know, get people bidding for their services and maybe get paid somewhere else, you know, whether it be early in your career when you're not ready for the UFC, whether it be later in your career after your UFC run is done, whether it be during your prime where you're just trying to have two people bidding against each other. It's a great opportunity for the athletes. But, you know, in terms of like the reward of us covering the events and that sort of thing, I mean, just the traffic, as you said, I mean, just it, obviously you can't get into hard numbers, but anybody that was covering mixed martial arts and has seen the numbers, behind it, it wasn't close. It wasn't right. even remotely close. And you're looking at like gate as a, as a perfect comparison figure. And that makes sense. I look at like web traffic for MMA junkie and we covered strike force um, because, you know, listen, I think at the end of the day, we, we're all a bunch of hardcores that love right. the sport and, and, and want to give athletes attention. Um, and we, and we felt they were big enough that they definitely deserved attention, especially when they had like national broadcasting contracts and things like that. But in terms of a, a real rivalry to the UFC's dominance and, you know, can they make an impact in their business and maybe take over their market position? No, it, it, no. it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah, they were, it, it would, I don't think they were ever going to get to that. It, it, it was going to continue to be a, a strong, healthy promotion, I think. But I mean, the fact that they got bought, which is what we're going to talk about, it, you know, maybe that signals that that was not the case, but the purchase was announced on March 14, 2011, which seemed to, Kind of come out of the blue. I believe I was contracted with Strikeforce as a, uh, a content creator at that point. Uh, and, and in fact, um, according I, and I obviously I had no idea. I, mean, I wasn't an employee, but uh, according to an ESPN article written by Josh Gross, Scott Coker had actually denied the promotion was being bought by Zufa just two weeks earlier. In fact, I believe he called it crazy. But then the acquisition was announced. So I'm curious what your reaction was to the news. And if I'm actually as we're talking, I remember when I had gorgeous George Garcia on, I believe he told me that you were at a dinner with him when you guys were given the heads up or that you found out something like that. So clear up my, my, my memory on that. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting story. I'll tell you what's funny is uh, the first thing you said about Scott Coker denying it. Uh, you know, what's funny is it, when you said that it came to mind, Dana White denied the UFC was being sold right before it was sold as well. So right, it's kind of right. funny how guys right. react in that position. No. Right? <laughs> not at all. Uh, but no, you know what's funny is, uh, so I was not at that dinner, but George came and talked to me about that dinner afterwards. That's right. Okay. At. All right. So we we had heard rumblings. We had and, heard, he, you know, and, and I think he said that he, he you were trying to get him to give up who gave it to him or something like that. And he wouldn't well, give it up or something along those lines. The thing is we were, we, we had heard rumblings, right? we had heard that maybe there was something in, in the works, but to me, I'll be honest, I was always a little hesitant because I thought, what are they really buying? I mean, at the end of the day, like I think this organization strike force is probably heading towards, you know, being gone at some point, you know, is, is the library worth that much? I mean, the, the, the fighters and, and what it ended up being, I mean, that's right. As the UFC is, is ramping up to go to Fox and they're expanding their event schedule and they need more names, they need more headliners. And this was the cleanest way to acquire those contracts. But at the time, you know, we'd heard the rumblings and, and, and gorgeous George Garcia came to me. He was like, dude, it's, it's done. Like, I'm telling you it's done. I'm like, 
I still don't know. Like, why wouldn't you just let them bleed dry? Like, we know that they're trying to ramp this up into this big organization. You know, Strikeforce crushed it when they were a, a local organization, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Scott Coker understood the Bay Area market. He had resources into all those fighters. He knew the ticket sellers. You know, I mean, they were a big deal. But, man, as you're trying to expand across the nation and you're trying to do it on a shoestring budget, I mean, you got, you know, credit to everybody that did it. I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, criticize the work they did. They did amazing work. But – it's hard to do it. Right. And, and yeah. it just seemed like, with, you know, by the way, with 10, with 10 employees, by the way, they had a staff of 10 employees. So and that's yeah. exactly it. That's what I'm saying. So it just seemed to me like, Hey, you know, why wouldn't you just let it bleed dry and you can get those athletes afterwards anyway. But um, you know, it all fell in line with the UFC's growth and they needed to get some names under their umbrella quick. So yeah, it was pretty funny. George, George had the knowledge, man. He's like, it's done. <laughs> and, and I was like, man, I'm just still, you know, and, and I wanted to know definitely. I was like, well, if, if you're hearing it's done, cause I'm hearing it's happening, but I'm not hearing it's done. Right. Where are you hearing it from? You know? So it was, it was kind of interesting. It was kind yeah. of fun. He, uh, George said that on the podcast, he said that I want to say it was, um, Joe, um, Matchmaker. God, uh, Silva. Silva. Yep. I think he said Silva was the one that told him or at least gave him the reasoning behind it was exactly what you said. They needed the fighters. So they're expanding. Uh, you know, they're doing more free night or free fight nights and different stuff like so they just need need a bigger roster. Yeah. Why not just gobble them up and then, you know, take the fighters you want. But again, it, Mike Aframovitz in the, uh, you know, the comms director for Strikeforce in the Josh Gross article says, we're going to continue to operate as two separate entities. And right. I mean, you know, going back to the pro wrestling, you know, part of this, that, you know, Vince McMahon bought WCW. Oh, they're going to run as a separate. When you have like a, a guy like a Dana White or a Vince McMahon, they're not going to, they're not going to create their own competition and actually really go with that. I mean, you knew from the beginning he was going to take the fighters that he wanted to take. And I mean, by the end of it, no disrespect to uh, Trek Safadine or Nate Marquardt or guys like that. But when they're your champion in probably your most competitive division, by, besides maybe the lightweight division, that you know, th th that's the level of competition that you're at. Again, no disrespect to them, but you've got George St. Pierre destroying people in the UFC, like George St. Pierre versus Trek Safadine. I mean, that's sorry, that's just not going to be a really competitive fight. No, and I remember when they said they do that, and, and, and I remember questioning that from the very beginning, like, how are you going to make this work? You know, when they tried it with the WEC, I was like, okay, wait a minute, you're just going to go with the lighter weight classes right. here? Okay, okay, all right, now we got something. But at this point, you've incorporated everything in the UFC, so you hear that, well, we're going to run as a separate promotion. It really was funny to think, well, how exactly are you going to do that? You know, I think the idea was maybe if it's a developmental league, which is, you know, if, if, if which I think would have been a good concept if they really truly wanted to, you know, continue using it, would be like, hey, the, let's sign people people that we're not ready to put in the UFC right now. Kind of like the way like Bellator is doing right now. You know, Bellator has to take these chances on these O and O fighters, right? Because they want to grab them and get them under contract before they get on the UFC's radar and take them. So I thought that was maybe one way it would work, but you hit the nail on the head. I mean, as soon as you hear it, when you've seen the industry over and over and you see these things, you know, if you're new to the industry, you might go, that sounds like a fantastic <laughs> idea. <laughs> right, I look forward right. to hearing how they work it. But if you right. know the inside, you're like, nah, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And again, I mean, you, we saw it with pride. They bought pride and they're oh, pride's going to run. They're going to continue. Now that was a different situation because, uh, because of trying to do business in Japan, as Dana said, they tried 
but Japanese didn't want to do business with Dana and, you know, for many, many different reasons. So, you know, they had tried it. It already had not worked. They had already acquired other promotions. It, it, at the end, it ends up being an asset deal, a tape library deal. Now, I mean, I watch all these strike force events that we're covering on fight pa- on UFC fight pass. And so I'm thankful they bought the tape library because, you know, or else I wouldn't be doing the, the show, but you know, the con the fighters that they absorbed, it, it made, I think it made ended up making a lot of sense, especially I think the I don't think the number the dollar figures ever been confirmed, but I think it was 40 million if I remember correctly. So if you, you know, pull the fighters that you pull in for that type of money, the tape library, all that helps your expansion. You know, it, I think it makes it ends up making a lot of sense. So the thought that was that Strike Force had to deal with Showtime at that time that was scheduled to end at the end of 2012. So it was speculated that strike force would continue to operate until the end of the contract. And then would be folded into the UFC. It did last into 2013, knowing Dana's acrimonious relationship with Showtime. Uh, you know, that was probably a good guess. So, you know, we've kind of answered the question, you know, does Dana have it into in him to let another promotion operate under his, in, under his umbrella without getting involved? You know, again, we've kind of answered that, but, Looking at the broader landscape of MMA, we know what it meant to the UFC, but with now no competition, really, again, we didn't think they were, but there was this thought out that Strike Force was competition for uh, for the UFC. What did the acquisition mean for for the MMA landscape as a whole? I mean, to me, it signifies the end of an era that that's like that's I mean, it's pretty much just been the UFC since then. Yeah, that was like the last gasp of anything else. But what did it mean then? And, and kind of, again, looking back now, what does it mean from a historical standpoint? I mean, there's two things. You're absolutely right about the end of an era. I mean, at that point, as you said, was it really a legitimate financial rivalry? You know, it wasn't, you know what I mean? But it was a, a viable competitor and, and an outlet for athletes on a high level to negotiate between two organizations. You know, I mean, there was actually, uh, I know some wringing of hands behind the scenes when they did acquire all those contracts that they were like, Jesus, what did they pay these guys to get them away from <laughs> us? And now we got we to gotta pay that money that they right. got to get away from us, you know? So that was pretty funny. I, you know, the, the positive side, though, is it, you know, it did be mark the beginning of an era with women's MMA at the highest level as well. You know, obviously women's MMA had been developing all along, but Strike Force allowed that to flourish even more before it actually came to the UFC banner as well. So, you know, I didn't think about that as the immediate byproduct of it because we weren't sure what was going to happen. But in retrospect, when you look back, I mean, the, the Strike Force women's division did a lot for the sport, and obviously it blew up even more. Uh, you know, once Ronda Rousey became a thing in the UFC. But in, in terms of, you know, an MMA timeline, it really did feel like the end of an era in terms of, you know, the UFC and, and that that famous tombstone, right, where you're putting names on there. But, yeah. the, you know, I, all those. I, by the way, I had never seen that before. Last night, as I was prepping this, uh, prepping my notes for the interview, I saw the picture of Dana holding that I'd never seen that before. Oh my like, gosh, that's iconic. That's that. iconic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you think about it. I mean, those those rivalries, you know, those promotions did seem like rivals and they did seem like hurdles for the UFC to deal with. And and once it went away, I mean, that's to me when you kind of got the feeling that, like, oh, there is nobody that's gonna come along and take their spot. And you know, it's funny. Um you know, I work with CM Punk when I, with, with CFSC, and he and I were talking recently about, you know, can it ever change? You know, obviously he's a part of all elite wrestling right yeah. now, and I, I don't follow the wrestling scene very much, but because of CM Punk, you know, I've, I've gotten a little bit more closer to it. You know, he's a friend of mine, a guy I like watching over there. So, uh, and it is kind of unique, right, to see that now – 
this AEW upstart company being mentioned along the powerhouse of WWE. So, yeah. you know, in that industry, it looks like maybe there is a shift that's potentially yeah. happening. And maybe it could still happen in the UFC, you know, someday in, in the sport of mixed martial arts. Um, you know, maybe maybe they, they fall asleep at the wheel a little bit and, and, yeah. and somebody comes up. But this really did feel like that moment where you're like, oh, yeah, the UFC is the, 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 going to be the power that, that, that is. You know, I, so you bringing up AEW and, and Punk and I, I got to so I am a big AEW fan. I still follow wrestling very, very closely. And I, you know, America top team, America top team and uh, Dan Lambert are involved with AEW now. I would, I, I, I'm sure. And yeah. as, oh, and as we, as we we're speaking, I read uh, Kayla Harrison's uh, interview and her comments on, cause she did a, like a run in with America top team. And then she called wrestling. She's like, I'm never doing that again. I hated it. It's fake. And you know, all this, I'm like, wow, I hope she comes. I hope she does. Cause she'd be the biggest heel like ever now in wrestling. But um, you know, to me, wrestling has, I think it just has bigger personalities or, or at least leverages personalities better than, than MMA as a whole, because the, you have to go through the theatrics and all that stuff. And so to me, like wrestling, uh, leverages its nostalgia way better than MMA does. There is not as much interest in nostalgia in MMA as I thought that there would be, uh, you know, there's not as many hardcore history fans as you and I that have been involved or have been fans at least for a long, long time, guys, you know, they just like to see guys get their heads bashed in or, you know, get their, you know, get their arms snapped or whatever it is. There's just not that. I don't think there's a level of connection with MMA as there is between pro wrestling and wrestling fans. So all of that said, I think it will be more difficult for a competitor to come up against the UFC. That's going to be able to get the fighters that can put on the type of fights uh, that are going to have the personalities to draw away from the UFC. Cause if any promotion does leverage the personalities that they, in the way they should, I think it is the UFC Bellator has gotten away more from the circus fights, which did lend itself more to the history and the personalities. So I, I, in it's, and it's, my point is it's a great thing. Like that type of competition is a wonderful thing for any industry, any sport. It's the fans are always the winners when it happens. And so I, I kind of wonder how much more MMA is going to grow as long as there is not a viable contender to the UFC. And I, and I really don't know that there ever will be, doesn't mean there's not room for the PFLs and the Bellators, but as like an actual competitor, I, I just don't really see that happening. It's such an interesting place. So when you talk about the growth of MMA as a whole, you know, I've been fortunate to travel the globe uh, working in this industry and see how it is growing as a global entity. So I, I do think there's still room for the sport of mixed martial arts to continue to grow. Cause I hear a lot of people say, well, it's kind of peaked in the United States. I'm like, you do realize there's a whole lot of other yeah, countries out there, out there. And a whole lot of red. None of them is, so none are as that. important as this one though. So just want to point <laughs> You're that damn out. right. America. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, but, uh, but it's funny, but so there is still room for growth, but you, you make an interesting point when you talk about the competitors to the UFC, right? And I always say this, and, and I don't mean it as any disrespect to anybody, to any other promotion, because I watch everything. I consume everything. You know, I love PFL uh, wrapped up a really good season not too long ago. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Bellator continues to, to do big things. Um, but I, I always say this, you know, there's no there's no like 13 year old kid in a gym doing jujitsu and punching the bag and saying, you know what? One day I'm going to be a Bellator champion. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's, it's, it's no disrespect whatsoever, but that's not the dream. That's not the goal. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go to those other organizations and make some money and support yourself and do very well for yourself. But the idea right now, the dream is to be the UFC champion for everybody that's doing it. And until you can re replace that, um, I, I, yeah, I don't know that you can. Now, I will say this. 
your, your point on the personalities is really interesting as well, too, because here's one thing I do see. And it is funny. I have started to watch a little bit of wrestling with the AEW, with the connections to CM Punk, the American top team stuff. And I'm actually enjoying myself, you know, watching Junior Dos Santos because I know the people, right? Like right. I'm watching people right. I know and I've covered. And I, and it's, yeah, like, you know, Masvidal runs in with a flying knee and it looks really, really, <laughs> it, it looks yeah. really fake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, but it's funny. I'm That's having funny. fun. because yeah. But here's what's interesting, right? I came up in a time where, you know, I shied away from, from professional wrestling. And then as I started covering the sport, you know, remember when I started, that's the era back when people were like, is this real or yeah. is this professional wrestling? And so Dana White, the UFC, me, it's like we wanted to shy away from everything that had anything to do with professional wrestling because we wanted to make sure that everybody realized this is as real, real as it gets, right? Yeah. This is real. Right. But you know what? I think the world does understand that now. And I think, you know, I think one of the reasons Dana didn't want to do some of the theatrical stuff and some of the reason he didn't want to embrace some of the professional wrestling stuff is to make sure that people understand this is not that. But I think we're in an era now where people do understand that this is not that. Yeah. And maybe now you could bring a little back of the pageantry back in and yeah. somebody can take advantage of it. Maybe they can get a foothold in the industry because that stuff's, yeah. that's fun, right? It is. I, I, I mean, it's one of the things I miss about Pride is the pageantry. And uh, what's her? I can't remember her name. The redhead Raven that uh, would announce them. Um, into Lenny Hart. The, Lenny yeah, Hart. Lenny Hart. You know, like that kind of stuff. King Mo coming out with, you know, dancers and Mayhem Miller doing that. And Charles Crazy Horse Bennett and all like I miss that stuff. And that's one of the things that we I mean, I don't know that there was there's ever been a better talker as a fighter than Frank Shamrock. I mean, the guy could talk people into the building, 18,000 people at the first strike force event uh, for a, a very non-competitive fight between him and Caesar Gracie, who had never fought MMA before. And he talks 18,000 people into the building for that. I mean, so there's, there's room for that. There's absolutely room for that. It can't cross the line into where, Oh, well, is this real or is this fake? Obviously. But I think there should be more of that. I really, really, because it's connecting to those personalities that makes it fun to watch wrestling. Yeah. The moves are great. And I love the flippy stuff and you know, all, I, I mean, I love that, but it's the personalities that make me feel, you know, and, and with it, without that, without that connection, it's really hard to really get invested in it. I'm not nearly, I still follow MMA closely for sure, but I, it's more for the, you know, my dying breed of, you know, the Alistairs and the, you know, the guys that, that are still at Frankie and, you know, the different guys that are still around from when I was really, really invested in it. So yeah, it, it, yeah sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think you're spot on. And I think the key to, to remember, we're not saying that every single fighter needs to be Conor McGregor or Chael no. Sonnen. You know, not everybody has to be that way, but you're absolutely right about the connection to personalities. You always mention like a guy like Cowboy Cerrone. I mean, what a fan favorite, right? It's not, I mean, he's got a little bit of a gimmick, right? Cowboy yeah. hat, fights anybody, right. anywhere. You know, that's what, but you're absolutely, I've said it from the beginning of time. You ask anybody who their favorite fighter is, and then you ask them why. They're not going to be like, Oh, because he has such a great high kick <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Because that jab, it's, it's, I can't, I just you can't live it's without the that. Best jab. I've ever, yeah, nobody yeah. says that. It's like this right. guy is from where I'm from. He speaks where I speak. I like the way that he it doesn't care about the world. It's the personalities. That's right. what makes people care. And so, you know, yeah. it's it's about wins and losses, but it's about getting people entertained and, and wanting to tune in. Well, I wanna I wanna wrap this up. I've got um I, I got a side question that's gonna not sound like it has to do with anything, but I've always wondered this and I've actually never asked about it. Um, but I'm going to segue into that. So part of the, the last strike force question about the acquisition that I want to ask is Dana had gone on record saying that women would never, ever fight in the UFC, which, you know, obviously that his position changed and you have to credit strike force 
for that change because it gave Chris Cyborg and, you know, Gina Carano, Chris Cyborg, Misha Tate, uh, you know, even Amanda Nunez had a couple fights in strike force before she went to the UFC. So, um, and then, you know, obviously, uh, uh, Ronda Rousey, I mean, so strike force, if there is a historical mark from them, it's that like, it's, it's the fact that they gave rise to women's MMA and that's turned it into obviously a very, very viable part of the industry. So I have a kind of a two-part question. One was, what was the feeling amongst fighters? I saw a tweet from Paul Daly from that time where he was supposed to headline against Nick Diaz in the next fight. And he obviously had a very bad relationship with Dane in the UFC. They had banned him for life at that point. So he was, I don't know if, you know, Hey, get with my manager. I don't know if we're going to do this fight that. So what was the feeling amongst, you know, female fighters, fighters overall. And then secondly, you mentioned the fighter contracts for strike force. Some of, as we're going through, we give the the salary break. They're not always available, but we give the salary breakdowns uh, for the for the cards. And I remember one that sticks on my my mind. Marlus Kunin got two grand for a a title defense. I know that there's obviously there's sponsorship dollars, there's locker room bonuses. You know that. Some, how accurate are those in your, I don't know, you can't answer for all of them, but how accurate are those salary? Like, I can't believe that she got two grand. Like that doesn't make any sense. So can you kind of unlock that mystery for me? And then, yeah, what was the general feeling amongst fighters after the acquisition? Yeah. On, on the salaries, they're, they're not, they're not accurate at all. I wish they were, to be honest with you. I think it'd be great for fighters to have that information public. You know, now the state of Nevada doesn't even publish salaries anymore, which they did forever, which would have been huge during, during this pandemic era, because, you know, every fight week is in Las Vegas and you could see all those contracts, but they're not accurate, especially when you talk about foreign fighters during that era, a lot of them would get really small money here and then they would get a, a bigger paycheck in the terms of a promotional agreement. And so that would be paid elsewhere. That would be paid back in their home country so that they could avoid or, or paid to, you know, a business of theirs, whatever the case may be. It was basically a big tax shelter as a way to okay. avoid, here's what it looks like we're being paid, but there's another promotional agreement behind the scenes that entails more money. So okay. absolutely didn't get too great. And to be honest with you, that still happens today. You know, I saw somebody, you know, debating recently about a UFC champion getting like $50,000 for a title fight or something. I'm like, that is not even close to what they're being paid. It's like, <laughs> okay. if you want to think that's what they're being paid. So, so that's really what that's about. It's about creative accounting. Um, okay. Those things are always a, a nice guideline. And I wish they were accurate because if they were accurate. Everybody in the marketplace would have a better idea of where right. they stand and what to negotiate. Hence the reason the UFC worked with the Nevada State Athletic Commission to keep want them that. private and doesn't right. want them anywhere. Right. Um, but no, as far as your question about the feeling, I think there was a, a little bit of a general sense of fear and like frustration. You know, a, a lot of people, you know, didn't necessarily love the UFC's business practices and and, and they they worked with Strike Force and Scott Coker is known as a, as a as a fighter friendly kind of a guy. Now I've heard a lot of people say you know, he was fighter friendly because he overpaid, you know what I mean? And they, and they got money that they shouldn't have gotten. But, you know, a lot of people, like you mentioned, like Paul Daly that had a bad, you know, a bad feeling in one place, you go to the other and you're like, I like it over here in my new home. This is my new family. Like we're, we got a great thing going here. Like, Oh, by the way, guess what? Your new family just got bought by your old family and <laughs> back over there. It's like, Oh no. Like I thought I finally got done with having to do business with those people again. And I got to go back. So there definitely was a fear. And, you know, that comment, absolutely, about, you know, the UFC, uh, you know, never wanting to do women's fights. I mean, that was a big deal. Of course, it was only a year later that Ronda Rousey was in there. And, uh, you know, it's it, it was it was a big change. But I think there was a general fear, not among all fighters, but definitely among some that had kind of found, a you know, a happy little niche outside of the UFC to be like, Jesus, now we got to go back and do it again. Um, and so it was it was a tough spot. And I think a lot of people were worried. And again, I think a lot of people 
felt the same way we did that. Oh my gosh, we're done with an era where now we're no longer going to have viable bidding on our services from other places. And, and, you know, our, our market value is going to go down. We're not going to have these options. Clearly we've seen that that's not the case. There's more right. options than ever for people to fight in. Um, right. But I don't think that we necessarily knew that was going to be the case at the time. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, I appreciate you uh, again, answering that. I've, I've always wondered that. And Josh and I, my co-host on our, we always lament the small paychecks for some of the fighters. And now we, we, we understand that. So I'm going to let him know that and he, he can stop railing against that. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you one final strike force question before we go. Uh, what, what do you, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, commentating fights with CM Punk, which is, which is awesome. Uh, you've got the MMA road show uh, podcast. And then of course you're still writing for MMA junkie. Uh, so where can listeners find you? Is there anything you want to talk about specifically as far as activities and what you've got going on right now? No, no, you know, just staying busy, obviously. I mean, uh, it's been a crazy time during the pandemic era with every week being a fight week in, in Las Vegas. It's been uh, it's been a blessing and a curse. You know, on, on the blessing, I've been able to stay home with my family a lot more. You know, I got a nine-year-old son now. I've been able to spend more time with him. But every damn week is fight week. There's never one week <laughs> off where I'm like, hey, Mike Bond, you go handle that one. Hey, Nolan King, you go handle that one. I'm taking a week off. So it's been crazy. But yeah, no, I love doing the commentary on USC Fight Pass with CFSC. So definitely if, if, if anybody hasn't checked that out on Fight Pass, I think we got a great product and uh, I have a great time working working uh, with CM Punk. And uh, yeah, if you enjoy hearing me talk and, and uh, you want to hear a couple dudes drinking a frosty beverage and talking about MMA, check out the MMA Roadshow as well. Awesome. All right. Final question. Is there a, a favorite strike force fight or, and, or a favorite strike force fighter that sticks out in your mind? Like this is the fight that to me, this exemplified strike force, this is the guy that, or gal that exemplified strike force to me. Fedor losing to Verdun, man. That's a, that's I don't want to talk that, about that. <laughs> it's just an iconic. And I know that may be a weird one, but that's one of those moments that like, you'll never forget where you yeah. were because the, the feeling in that building. And I mean, you know, just the, the, the whole state of it, the, the, the way the place was just in shock. Yeah. I mean, that was, I called it a something. hushed roar. I called it a hushed roar. Hushed roar. Great happened. way to say it, man. Yeah. Great way to say it. And, and I'll never, I'll never forget sitting in that press room after and seeing Fedor up at the dais, you know, stone face as he was. And behind us, we can hear Verdun's <laughs> team just partying out. Hey, 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 boy. There's Fedor up there. Like, um, it was like, this is the most surreal scene yeah. I've ever seen. So that's, that's one that always stand out to me. But man, all those trips out to San Jose back in the day and, um, you know, the, the rite of passage that was staying at the arena hotel next to the, the shark tank, <laughs> yeah. which is, you know, I mean, every journalist stayed there at one point or another in this absolute dump of a hotel, yeah. you know what I mean? And just <laughs> trying to make it by in San Jose. But, uh, you know, the people, it was, it was a great organization, man. It, it, was, it was definitely a, a different vibe around there, you know, uh, a, a different feel underneath a, a Scott Coker run company. Yeah. It was a, it was a fun time, man. I enjoyed it. There were a lot, there were a lot of great fights and, and it was a fun time. Well, John, I appreciate your insight. You're, you're looking back and, and your overall perspective on this. I, it, it helped me to kind of understand it a little bit better and get that. Yeah. Again, just kind of overall perspective, but thank you for being on inside the hexagon. Pleasure, man. Thanks for doing this. It's been fun listening to the, to the history. All right. I want to thank my very special guest, John Morgan, for taking the time to join us on Inside the Hexagon. I had a really great time reconnecting with him again. He was one of the first people in MMA that I met uh, when I actually before I got really going 
in the uh, in the sport in the industry and he helped me and I, I really appreciate him helping me out again and taking the time to break down the Zufa purchase of Strike Force. It was a really great time. Hope that that came through, that you enjoyed that. Hope that you're going to enjoy the upcoming episodes we have. So we're going to do two event episodes in a row. Uh, the next one is going to be Diaz versus Daly, and you're not going to want to miss this. This is a very, very intriguing card, which features one of the best one-round fights in Strike Force history. Just a great, great championship fight between Nick Diaz and Paul Daly. and has all the buildup, and you know they didn't like each other, and... Even afterwards, there's still uh, still some words and before things calm down. Uh, so it's it's definitely a great fight worth covering. Gilbert Melendez has a fantastic showing against Tatsuya Kawajiri, Gegard Musassi, and Keith Jardine. Go to war. I mean, go to war, and it is a great fight. And then the Japanese submission ace Shinya Aoki takes on Lyle Beerbomb. So it's there's a lot of really big fights to cover on this one, so I'm looking forward to that. And then after that, the week after that, we are going to be covering Strikeforce Overeem versus Verdun. This is the return of Strikeforce's heavyweight champion at the time, Alistair Overeem. He's going to take on Fabricio Verdun. We also got Josh Barnett taking on Brett Rogers. Jorge Masvidal makes his return, takes on KJ Nunes. Daniel Cormier takes on Jeff Monson. I believe uh, Monson's only... Strike Force appearance, if I remember correctly, former UFC heavyweight title challenger. And then the grave digger Chad Griggs is back to take on the brother of Alistair Valentine Overeem. So a bunch of heavyweights on this card. Looking forward to covering that one as well. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope you check us out on social media. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at the Hexagon Pod. And you can reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. Again, would love to hear from you. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!